on October 25th, we're coming back to Melbourne for our first physical MLOps event. Whether you are just starting in the MLOps journey, improving in that space, or whether you have thousands of models in production, this event is for you. The type of things we're going to cover is MLOps for scale. And that scale can be number of models or the number of people in the team or the number of prediction and inferences that need to be made in an hour or a minute or a second. So how to create effective MLOps for all those scenarios. We're gonna cover MLOps processes and team structures. How do we organize ourselves and the talent that we have in our organizations for better results in MLOps. We're gonna be looking at creating efficient and effective MLOps pipelines in an end-to-end. -end. What does the data look like, the feature stores, all the way to the model deployment, serving, monitoring, alerting, etc. We're also going to cover getting a C-level buy-in and support for the investment in this area. We're going to be covering what governance and good management looks like in this space. So wherever you are in your journey, the MLOps event in Melbourne on October 25th is going to help you increase the maturity of MLOps in your organization. I hope you can join us. See you then. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project-focused data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Welcome everyone to our first panel. So we're here with Kendra, Ram, Gus and Farhan and we're going to be talking about scaling MLOps in the enterprise. Some of the things that we want to be discussing is team structures, different approaches there, getting business acceptance, productionizing models, tech approaches, going from prototype to production. And with that, maybe I'll start by asking Kendra views on the team structure. How are you guys organized in zero from an MLOps perspective and how do you guys think about it? And then I'll ask for different perspectives on the same. But uh, Kendra, if you can kick us off. Thanks for having me. It's really cool to be here. And hello to everyone watching out there across the world. So at zero, how do we structure our MLOps team? Maybe I'll answer a slightly different question is how do we approach ML product build? So um, as, is, as with the rest of Zero, we have a plan of you build it, you own it. What that means for us is we build in sort of integrated product teams. So we, we don't have data scientists on board. We call them applied scientists. You know, everyone's going to have their little quirks about how you change people's names. So we work with a team of product managers, applications engineers, and applied scientists all together in a delivery pod. And they will take a product from ideation around what is a service that makes sense for zero and our users through to and into production and usage. Um, we're relatively early in our journey. So we're not yet at the point of sort of a product that is very, very stable and has been running for many, many years. Most of our and our products have only been in market like a year, a couple of years. And so they're still also in the very active development phase. 
where we would be expecting to push new features um, and new pieces of the product into market relatively regularly. So for us, that cadence, that group composition works really, really well. Um, we also try to focus on building multi-headed services so that the ML product team, the team that is building that particular ML inside service, would often be working with two or more customer touching teams who perhaps you might think of as own the Chrome. Um, so that, I guess, brings another dimension to the way we think about and put our teams together. Yeah, really nice. And, and one of the things that um, Kendra said to me um, before, uh, when we were chatting before this, is um, she highlighted that there's no one-size-fits-all approach, that there's there's different, uh, it's essentially horses for courses, and that um, part of what we want to do in this panel is bring you the, the, some of the different approaches uh, that we have in, in the way that we structure teams. Um, so Ram, I wanted to ask you from, from your perspective, how, how do you structure your, your teams from, um, to create ML products and then the ML ops side? Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Felipe, first of all, for having me. Uh, and um, uh, hello to everyone uh, across the globe who joined this. Uh, from a Woolworths and Woolies X perspective, uh, it's slightly different, like in terms of uh, how uh, we have gone about, you know, in this journey. Uh, we've got data scientists and then we've got machine learning engineers. Uh, the reason we uh, kind of uh, went through that is because data scientists predominantly build the models. I mean, train the models, build the models. Uh, they work with stakeholders and understanding the problems that they're trying to solve. And then we've got the machine learning engineers who help in scaling and productionizing the models. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a crossover of skills between the data scientists and machine learning engineers uh, in our team. Uh, and we focus on that as well. Uh, but we also realized that in order to um, scale, we needed to develop this practice and bring in uh, expertise uh, wherein we've got uh, machine learning engineers who help the data scientists from, you know, in terms of productionizing the model itself. So, um, and, and we work in an agile uh, setup. So every product that we build will have a squad and within the squad, you've got product managers, uh, then you've got data scientists, machine learning engineers, and also other skills that you might be required to deliver that particular product. So it's coming together of all the different skills that we need to bring that uh, machine learning product to life. And that's how uh, we have um, scaled uh, in, the, in the last few months. And it's been incredibly successful for us. And we've been able to... Um, you know, build um, the, uh, some of the ML products and, and they are in production and we've seen some uh, great success with our customers uh, based on the AI products that we have developed. Fantastic. That's excellent. Um, Gus, from, from your perspective, tell us uh, a little bit about how you guys are structured and then um, tell us a little bit about the, the different skills that you see that the, the different teams uh, need in order to, to make MLOps a, a success? Sure. Uh, thanks, Philip, for having me here. And hi, everyone. And, and yeah, um, uh, well, the AI at Castle starting about like about five years ago. Yeah. At that time, actually, we are, we are giving AI a go. So the, the journey from that point on actually to, uh, define our strategy currently. Yeah. So when we're starting this AI journey, we have no uh, AI uh, talent data scientists whatsoever. Yeah? So it's just 
uh, a few of software engineer, uh, the one who's really passionate. We we trying AI, we learning data scientist, uh, data science skill. Yeah, and as we uh, develop the AI technology, the next few years, we starting to realize that oh, um, building the AI tech is not just building the model. Right, mm -hmm. you also need to actually operationalize it and operationalize it to build the continuous training and things like that. Right, and serving the the the, the, the in, for inference. And we have no issue with that because we all come from the software engineering background. So we do not realize that this MLOps is actually an issue. Yeah, until just recently, this is becoming like a new kids on the block. Everybody talking about it. It's a blocker from many organization because they're too focused in hiring just uh, building data scientist team, but there is no engineering component. So so yeah, so that's what happened in and and five years ago, and then. Uh, starting like uh, two years ago, we starting to grow, right? So we we start uh, uh, we start having like a data science uh, team within the castles, and our team, um, um, our AI team. Uh, prior to that, we we are the one who do end to end building the model, productionizing it, everything everything we do from end to end. And starting two years ago, we start uh, becoming a help a helper to this team to enable productionizing the, the model, right? And then just like recently, we starting to realize that. Uh, the, the data science team and our team is not a big team. In total, maybe less than 10 people there. And the demand for AI is getting growing more and more throughout the entire organization. Yeah, the, Many departments wanting to build, build AI model, they all come to us and we become the bottleneck. And we also starting to realize that this is not like five years ago when building AI technology, Yeah, M most of them, uh, any good software engineer with a good uh, uh, logical uh, skills, right? They can learn this easily, especially with the help of all, lots of high-level high services. Yeah, so I wouldn't say like all AI model you can build uh, without the data scientist skills. No, but currently 50% of AI model you can really build just using these AI services without very little bit of like a help and guidance. Yeah, in a data science area. So with that, uh, at Castles, with attempting this new strategy, we try to actually enable AI on all software development team. Yeah, so at Castles we have about. 10 uh, software development teams there. Yeah? And each one of them have their own like a silo with a product designer, right? Deploying their own their own their own product. So we want to enable each one of them. Yeah. So what we do now, we're actually turning whatever the MLOps platform that we have in our team yeah? to actually install it in every single one of these teams. And then also giving them guidance, enabling them to actually deploy end-to-end -end AI and also to pair up with the data science team yeah? to actually help productionizing their model. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is the strategy mm -hmm. we are taking on. Yeah, it's actually win-win for everyone, right? For the business, it's good because you do not need to hire, uh, spend a lot of money hiring unicorns, right? Data scientists, right? And for the software developer, also good as well because giving them ability to learn and, and opportunity to learn. Yeah, and also data scientists who wants to do uh, to build a very simple AI model, right? Let other people do it. I will just do all the complicated one, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's our take on this. Yeah, that's really good. And the, in the um, the data coming in to all those different teams, is that um, largely centralized from a data preparation perspective or, or do people look after their, their own needs largely? Uh, how, how is that, that split? That's, that's a good question, Philip. So there is, there is a, a data a platform and engineering team within Gazelles who, who actually central, uh, coordinate all the data into one central repo, repository. Yeah? So we call it Data Lake. And, and so everybody tapping into this. Yeah? But like I said, uh, we're just starting to try to democratize democratize this AI enablement to all uh, team. So at the moment, 90% of AI uh, tech development is just uh, built by our team and this data science team pairing up with us. Yeah? So we can we will see in the next six months or one year that other teams start consuming this data and building their own model pipeline. Yeah? So Great, excellent, excellent. Um, and Farhan, from, from your perspective, can you uh, tell us about um, 
in, in your experience where you've seen some of the, the teams and skill sets and then uh, tell us a little bit about how, uh, what are the stages that people should move through when they go from a prototype model into moving into, into production? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think from, a, uh, from the perspective of moving from prototype to production, it also tells you like how, what kind of skills you should start to incorporate, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can, you can start simply with a single Python script that can generate a CSV and just put it on a data store and that can be somehow consumed. I mean, you can go with something super raw to having something that's like a real-time inference engine, for example, uh, at a point of sale for a credit card, you know, to check for fraud. So you have that whole entire spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and and this, this, we, should, we should split this up into like what are actually the necessary kind of areas that, that are required, right? So you've got data and data pipelines that feed both your training and your inference. You've got the actual training process, and then you have inference. And when I say inference, that's the point at which you're actually using your model, right? And it's typically these are the three kind of areas that, that you need to invest in to, to scale. So you need to scale the pipelines and make them reliable. You need to scale the training and make it reliable. And then you need to scale and make sure that the inference um, is actually uh, you know, at scale and, and working at the speed that you need. So now that you have these three components, now if we think about what the data scientist does in, in their prototype stage, they'll maybe just extract some data, um, do some training and then do, entrance, uh, do their inference um, on their side. Um, to take this to production, um, you've got a few components, like you've got uh, data skills or data engineering skills definitely required to make sure that the, the data that's coming in doesn't require a, like an, a crazy amount of processing and or the data architecture is such that it's fairly straightforward to build that pipeline. And then you've got common kind of ops stuff, right? Basically, is this table populating in order to feed the training or not? Um, and that can be things like, you know, ML engineers or even just software engineers that are experts in, for example, Airflow or like other kind of scheduling, uh, job scheduling uh, type things. Of course, data scientists can do all of this as well. Um, it just depends on, you know, which side of the spectrum they are. Are they highly inclined to be statistical and algorithmic rather than software oriented or, or what kind of mix do you have? Um, and then I think for the training part, uh, this is where, you know, the cadence of training the data that's required, the parameters that are required, I think that that requires a lot of input from data from from data scientists. Um, at the same time, inference also requires that. Now, the part where you get more help from people that are, have stronger skills in software are situations when you know inference becomes it's like SLA critical. So that means you want your timing to be you know you need to reply with your prediction in let's say, you know, a millisecond, five milliseconds, you have a tight bound on how fast you need to return this. And we see this commonly, right? You, If you are a Netflix and, and you're searching on your phone, this needs to return in, in pretty quickly. Otherwise, uh, user is going to be frustrated. So how do you get your inference to be that fast? And typically, I will say that anybody with uh, strong data science skills uh, would not have invested deeply enough to be able to solve that kind of problem. And that's where you need engineering help, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you make these training pipelines? And then therein lies the challenge. How do you make sure that any new innovation that data scientists cool. coming up with or a, or a machine learning uh, research uh, person is coming up with can be 
uh, amenable to these like high speed, uh, like the ability to, to, to make predictions at high speed. Um, so I think in terms of a mix, it's definitely data engineering, software engineering, and data scientists. Those three components are, are pretty much cover uh, most of this, if you align it along the actual needs of, of what you were trying to build. Great. That's, um, that's, that's an awesome, awesome perspective. Um, gives us a bit of, bit of landscape. And as we've been talking, there's been a lot of questions coming in. So we'll start uh, addressing some of the audience questions. Um, and for the, for the people listening, uh, please post your questions on the Q&A section, uh, because if they go on the, on the chat, uh, they, they might get lost with the rest of the communication or the, the rest of the conversation that we, we encourage everyone to, to have. Um, so I did say, I did see uh, one which is um, uh, directed at Kendra. So I'll ask her first, and then if anyone else has, has any thoughts, uh, jump in. And it's about testing. So the question is from John, uh, John Hawkins, hi mate. Um, and he says, interested to know, at Kindred, interested to know how you manage the build it, you own it culture. Uh, do you get data science teams to ad adequately test and support, uh, and the support being after hours as well? How, do, how does that uh, component work for you? Yeah, so I think I did, I did say we don't have data science teams. We, we treat machine learning products like any other product. And therefore, right from the very beginning, we have a team that is mixed between we call them applied scientists. I think it's probably partially between what other folk on the panel are calling a data scientist and a machine learning engineer. We have applied scientists, data engineers, to Farhan's point, and application engineers working all together. So it isn't a case of question might be around is something that Farhan touched on as well, which is, hey, folk who have invested a lot of time in understanding the mathematics of the of ML products don't have as strong a background usually in writing production software. But we don't have a data science team. We don't have a team made up of folk whose, whose qualifications and experience you might say would be more algorithmic. We have a delivery pod that is made up of folk whose, that is their specialty, and folk who are dyed in the wool from the beginning have built application software. So support is managed inside a pod. And just like you might have, you know, first level support, second level support, third level support. I'm sure most of your listeners will be familiar with this. The chances that the problem is with the algorithm are extraordinarily small. The first prob problem probably is, is, is that it is in the data stream. So it is more likely to be the data engineers that are actually doing after our support. I would see the ML sort of application scientists, sure, they are there and they are absolutely committed to answering the problem if there really is one. But it's unlikely to be a, the service is down, fix it now problem. It is much more likely to be a this does not work as well as it did three months ago. What unidentified source of drift do we have in our stuff? And that's not something usually that you need to fix at two o'clock in the morning. So I hope that helps that answer. Helps, helps a lot. And it was related to, um, to a question that we have from Saab asking about how important data engineering knowledge is in MLOps. Um, and from, from that answer, we can see very, very important, definitely critical component. Uh, any other thoughts on the, on the um, supporting and testing um, parts from, from anyone else? I think one thing I, I will say is that uh, in my experience, what we've found is that, um, you know, there, there are two kind of models. One is where you pair data scientists with, say, an engineer and you, you, you help them productionize. And, and that becomes like a, almost the engineer is taking on a consulting role and it doesn't scale. And the, the better model has typically been 
that engineers build tools of self-service for data scientists so that that part scales much better because now that I'm a data scientist, I don't have to wait to get this process prioritized by engineering to get it into production. So typically what we aim for is that there are you know, self-service tools in place to put this thing into production. And then once it's actually in production, um, you kind of have to mix um, you have to mix the the kind of policy that you use in terms of maintenance. So what that means is you would literally have a hierarchy or or an escalation policy saying when this happens, can an engineer take care of it? And if they can't, then they move one step back and say, hey, I can't figure this out. Uh, next on call is, let's say, a data engineer. Next on call is a data scientist. Um, and that's kind of like, you know, a policy that I've seen work where you, you, you have engineers provide tools that help data scientists scale. And then in production, uh, you have a sort of policy that says who's the first, you know, line of help. And then, and then it, it escalates from there or it goes deeper into, okay. Uh, and to Kendra's point, you know, it's rarely that the algorithm, you know, there's something, you know, going on. It can happen, but typically it's the data. I think uh, just to add or even support what Farhan said, I totally agree that machine learning engineers are there to uh, help the data scientists by building self-service tools and make their jobs easy. Sometimes it can be a very clunky and manual processes for data scientists. So how do we build that um, you know, automation pipelines and uh, bring in that efficiency uh, in the overall end-to-end -end process is one. And secondly, when we talk about issues, there are two kinds of things, right? One being operational issues itself. Like, of course, those are the ones that you would need your MLOps team to look into and make sure uh, that the um, end result is achieved. That's one. But then the second one being the ongoing um, uh, performance of the model itself. Like every model goes through a process and it decays over a period of time, right? How do we ensure that we set it up in such a way that there is retraining happening, um, you know, and in, in an automatic manner. And that's where MLOps comes into play as well. So, so again, uh, doing it at scale and doing it for efficiency is going to be the key to have the MLOps team uh, supporting the data scientists. Uh, and it's going to be absolutely critical uh, as you want to, um, expand that in an organization, uh, you know, of scale, uh, like Woolworths, for example, or Woolies X. Um, yeah, so at, at Castles, we're doing something similar to like what Kendra said, we, we own it, yeah? we build, we own it. Yeah? Uh, it for, for data scientists to build a model and then to productionize it, they need to be paired up with uh, um, a software engineering team. Like currently it is our team, yeah? but in the future, we want to actually them to pair up with any team that have uh, AI enablement within. Mm -hmm. So um, when there's an issue, the first line of call definitely, of course, will be the engineering team who actually uh, uh, run the service. Yeah? Say like if you deploy the model as an inference SRS API, something, some, there's some issue there, engineer will have to look at it. And then if, there is, uh, if the issue actually found out here within the algorithm of the model, they will get uh, passed to the data scientist. And there's no issue because when they, they productionize the model, this engineer and the data scientist, they work together. Yeah? So there is a bit of overlap in, in, in knowledge. The engineer know a little bit about the model, and the, the, the data scientists also know a little bit about 
how the production happen. Yeah. So given uh, with that kind of like a, a synergy, yeah, the, the team actually work well together. They, they feel they really own it from end to end, not just like mm -hmm. I'm building a model. It's your job to productize it. And the engineer also can do the other way. Like it's not my problem, it's just your model problem, right? So we want yeah. to build this kind of like good synergy between the two. Yeah. Overlapping is very important. Yeah. That's great. There's this um, connection between uh, you know engineers engineers being front on the line. I I always have a a, a hilarious out of office um, reply automated one that says for all your prediction emergencies, please contact this other person. So it's it's rarely actually a prediction emergency, but it can happen. I love that. That is excellent. <laughs> um, that's great. So definitely gives us a good um, good insight into into the the teams. Um, uh, the te different team structures, different types of skill sets that are that are required, the importance of engineering, and then the flexibility of having engineering largely centralized. Obviously, it's always a spectrum, but uh, one side having engineering largely centralized, creating tools um, to to empower data scientists, and on the on the other side, on the other end, um, pairing data scientists and and engineers to to help build and deliver and serve the models uh, at scale and and at, and at speed. Um, so I think that that's that's really really good. Um, one of the other areas that we've been getting a lot of questions in is around um, um, retraining uh, models, automating that process, and then the flow of having new models coming to into production and it can be new models that are trained or are, are predicting something new or or new models that we're hoping that they replace uh, existing models in in production so definitely there's a, a bit of sort of um, uh, automated um, metrics um, automated retraining and then maybe a champion challenger approach in how the, the new models get selected and then when they go to get deployed um, how are they deployed do they start with very low amount of of traffic of data traffic and then they get expanded over time uh, I'll, I'll throw it i'll throw it open to to the floor on your perspectives on uh, on model model retraining and um in in that flick over to production Well, I can start first. <laughs> so um, at Castles, we um, we have a platform for the continuous training. So when the model gets productionized, yeah, we, uh, the the the, uh, the the software engineer who is responsible to to do the task will build up something called a training pipeline. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And this training pipeline is like a bunch of steps to to data extraction, preparation, cleaning, and then building uh, executing the the model training. And at the end, there is a validation point to check. If the model achieves a certain uh, accuracy, minimum accuracy, yeah. If it is less than that, we will not deploy. Yeah. So, so if if it is actually past that threshold, it automatically deploy in in, in uh, replacing the current model. At the moment, we do not have any like a canary kind of like a, a deployment, like a taking over the traffic slowly with the mm -hmm. taking over the, the old model traffic slowly with the new one. Yeah. Not yet, but we we aiming to have that as we are grow in maturity and more adoption in our AI tech. Yeah? Right, that's really good. Um, how about how about others? How does it work on on your side? It depends. It's one thing I find quite interesting. I think um, software engineering being a much more mature discipline, perhaps than what we're talking about, is I always struggle a little bit with like it depends. Like this is a very very broad space, and yes, to, almost you could just say yes to everything you said, Felipe. All of those things happen. Maybe I, I would pick up. Um, one, in, one interesting difference that I think comes out is I think a lot of 
particularly what a lot of is talked about online, is um, there are two relatively different types of machine learning products, I think. And I think they lend themselves to different ways of development. Then I am not passing judgment on either type. I'm saying there are two quite different types and I see them talked about perhaps where people overlap them. I think there is an instance type where you are running thousands of copies of a very similar model with perhaps regional variants. Mm -hmm. So if you're an Uber or if you're a Netflix um, or if you're an Apple, I'm sure. Um, and that leads itself really well to you genuinely have a sense of scale and you can do things like putting a lot of effort into your feature factories, your deployment, your hot, you know, all that sort of stuff. There's another aspect of, of ML, and I think it possibly tends to be where some smaller companies might start. You don't have that hyper-regionalization, so it doesn't really help you to run a thousand different copies of the same model, but you have two or three particularly impactful workflows in your company where it is actually worthwhile building. It's why I always call them ML products, not models. The model is a tiny piece of any useful product where it is really worth your while building relatively bespoke pipelines for those very, very impactful um, applications. Where you're doing that, I think the, the point that Gus was making is really, really useful and impactful when you're, when you're doing hyper-regionalization, lots of very, very similar copies perhaps. Um, one thing that we find in Zero is that we're still we're, we're we're dealing with stuff that is subjective enough to the user that where we put a lot of sure automating deployment great should we do it yes can we do it yes being able to deploy something five times an hour is not really particularly helpful I know that's not what Cus was saying but we put less of our time and effort at the moment into worrying enormously about sort of the the automation of deployment. Because we are still at the phase of wanting to spend significant amounts of time really understanding how the customer experience tracks to the metrics we can see. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is the customer workflows that we are working within are complex enough that a lot of our effort and interpretation goes into has this change made a gainful impact for our broad spectrum of global customers? So I, I love the MLOps side of automate the bejeebas out of anything you're going to do more than three times, completely agree with it. Interestingly, is not actually where I see my ML product teams spending the majority of their time. They spend the majority of their time in sort of inside that customer problem of, okay, I did this change. Now, how do I figure out what the genuine user impact of that change was? I love that, yeah. And, and I, I, I love the um, both the, the the clarity in the thinking and, and help us better define the, the landscape. Um, also with the perspective that it does depend on, on the organization and what they're, what they're looking to, to solve. Um, and, and then you also opened up another door that the, the measurement on how valuable the model is, um, it expands beyond accuracy uh, and that there's, there's a business metric and, and experience metrics uh, to be considered uh, into, um, uh, when we're looking at how how good a model is, how helpful, and is it better than than what we had before? Um, so I'll ask uh, maybe maybe Ram any any thoughts from from your perspective on how you guys go through the the MLOps process and and how you think about um, yeah uh, models in production and what it what it looks like getting better models out there. Oh. Okay. 
<laughs> I have to do at least one time in a day. Um, I, I, I think um, when it comes to the performance of the models, and I'll go there rather than MLOps and technicalities, because I'm I'm sure this panel is covering some of those topics. For me, it's about uh, at the end of the day, uh, what sort of impacts uh, are we creating for our customers, right? And and the customer metrics are very very important. And and we spoke about some of the business metrics. And and we measure that uh, because it's important to measure uh, the outcome that we were trying to achieve from the modeling uh, that we uh, were doing. Like for example, it could be acquisition of new customers being uh, one of the targets uh, variables that we decided uh, to do through the machine learning model. So we need to be able to actively monitor that, actively look at whether we are meeting our targets and if not, then we need to look at you know what's what's happening, whether it is a data issue or whether uh, the model can be tweaked or or whether we could add more features. There's a lot of different things that we could be doing here to to optimize the models, right? And and again, this is something that has to be done uh, as a collaborative effort. It's not just the ML engineers or just the data scientists. Uh, and it, it has to be the business as well coming together and working together and making the product you know better so that we are able to serve our customers better that that's the most important thing um, so we continue to um, track the different metrics and uh, you know and 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 there are different business goals or objectives that we want to achieve through the AI modeling that we are doing and we want to be uh, continuously improving that and MLOps help in a big way to to automate, uh, to monitor, to retrain the models. And, and again, I'm going back to the word uh, efficiency uh, because um, um, not all data scientists would have a software engineering background, for example, or may have the data engineering background. And, and they might be really good at, uh, you know, building algorithms like, uh, or using the right um, machine learning algorithms, all the statistical techniques and so on and so forth. So it's about getting that right combination and making sure that we are able to um, create that impact and a positive impact for our customers that we serve. That's excellent. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Farhan, were you, were you going to jump in there? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, it's a little bit of a long-winded point, but I just want to bring it up because I think it's important. So it's to back up what Kendra was saying. So mm -hmm. there's, an, there's a very interesting blog post by uh, Andre Karpathy, who's the director of AI at Tesla, um, where he talks about software 2.0, where basically software 1.0 is what we commonly know as code we write that we compile into a binary and that executes, right? Um, whereas software 2.0 is actually us giving the software or writing the architecture, but not having, for example, the weights in, right? And so software 2.0 is composed of the training data that you give, the, the framework or the architecture, whether that's a linear model or a tree or a neural network or whatever, um, the weights that are ultimately learned. Um, and that's actually finally your compiled kind of binary that gives you the output. So what the point I'm making is that the, the, that piece of software, it, it's, it's almost like you're changing code every time you retrain. And what does, what does code change imply? Code change implies volatility almost necessarily, right? You're going to have some change, most likely a break 
And so what you really want in, in a lot of software systems is minimal code change. And when there is a code change, it's, it's heavily scrutinized and made sure that that is actually valid, right? So what happens with retraining and regular retraining is that you're actually changing software. And when you're changing software, you are fundamentally destabilizing the system. So even though we run things at scale and we need them to scale, for example, the, the example that Kendra gave about uh, you know, regional models where we have, I've been there and we've had regional models up to like seven, 800 models, right? But imagine this, right? You have seven or 800 models and you are training them, let's say daily. And predictions are all over the place, all sorts of alarms and alerts will fire and you will just have a really bad time. So actually there's something to be said about stability of a model and that's where your your algorithmic skill comes in can you make your algorithm generalize enough that it can take care of some of the drift because if it can't take care of any of the drift you have a pretty unstable model so you should go back to the drawing board and say get me a more stable model and let's make this training daily let's make this training you know every six hours not hourly because if it's hourly you've got something going on so as a matter of fact, when we have scale, we actually do look for stability. Um, things like when we ship a product on an iPhone, we have over a billion active devices. Um, we need stability, right? Um, so, th so there's this balance that you have to have that yes, on the one hand, you have ML ops and that helps you retrain regularly and you do it in a, in a systematic way. But from just a purely training perspective, um, you know, it's not always beneficial. Uh, even from an algorithmic standpoint, to be doing it so regularly. I love that perspective. The summary, I think, maybe is really helpful for the audience. Is what is your pain point at the moment? Won't always be your pain point. Uh, if you, if you, then yes, you should put your effort into ML ops. Once you get to a point where you can deploy relatively regularly, you're going to get to the point suddenly, oh, that's not really very important anymore. This is really important, and you're going to work on that until it's better. Then suddenly, you're going to be back in the pain point of we can't deploy quickly enough. And I think as teams mature, they go through that leveling up. And perhaps the most important thing we could help folk on the call understand is it flips. And just because you're in one place now, if you work on the maturity of your team and what you do, you'll flip to another one. If you don't know your flip, you might spend too long trying to over-optimize one piece of the whole system. I love that. I, I love that and, and definitely yeah definitely definitely um, I've, I've seen that happen in terms of I'm not having the clarity and, and overshooting the optimization on one side and then almost being dragged into um, improving the uh, the other side and uh, when when after a penny drop moment so that's um, that's really great we had a, a question from from Balkan hey, hey Balkan uh, asking about how to estimate the time and effort required to implement um, ML models, uh, so big, big smile from, from Kendra there, uh, definitely. Um, and and what kind of strategies do you guys have to improving the the estimation accuracy? Uh, maybe we'll start with with you, Kendra. Well, um, <laughs> my answer was going to be iteratively. Hmm. Um, I do think it is one point where, particularly if you're building a relatively new ML team inside a company, you have to spend a lot of time helping the teams you work with and around understand that it is a little different. And that's not us saying, we're precious snowflakes, do it, you know, we do things differently. It is genuinely, I can't actually tell you whether I can build a human useful algorithm or a human useful pipeline until we have spent a significant amount of time kicking the data. Mm -hmm. 
And then after that, I might be in a place where I can sort of move a little closer to the more standard software delivery uh, lifecycle estimations. So it's a roundabout answer, but I think that might be one of my suggestions is try to help people in your organization and in your team, maybe if the team is new, understand that email products, perhaps you could think about it as going through two relatively distinct phases. One phase is that genuine, we are kicking the tires to see if this is even feasible. And one way we talk about it at zero is trying to reduce the uncertainty around, um, can we build it well enough to be useful? Um, and is the data good enough for us to build it to that point of usefulness? And we, we often concentrate on trying to shrink both of those error bars and hoping that they shrink on top of each other. Mm-hmm. but keen to learn if they shrink. And like, this is how good it has to be to be actually useful. This is how good we can build it with the data available today. And they don't shrink to the same place. Cool. Don't try to build that product, put it down. So we try to shrink those error bars, see that they overlap. And then to some extent, we do transition, I think, into a different phase of an ML product lifecycle, which is where you can bring in more robust estimation and have a clearer understanding about delivery timelines. It's really tricky if you aren't able to articulate the two different phases to the rest of your organization, because then they just get into this thing of like, you guys just sit over there and play for a while, don't you? And it's like, yes, but no. So there you go. That's my answer. I love it. Um, Gus, from your perspective, big, big smiles from you there through a Kendra's answer. Whatever Kendra said is like spot on. This is a problem we're dealing with at, uh, at, at, at Castle as well. I've always been asked, like, how long it takes you to build this? How come you cannot give me an estimate how long it takes, right? So, and and to, uh, to Kendra's point, uh, we also uh, divide the phase of the, uh, the development of a machine learning technology as two phases. First is really, we call it POC, yeah? Mm-hmm. And depend, if this is the, uh, when we look at it, oh yeah, actually this is something that very similar to what we've done earlier, we can give them a rough estimate. But if it is something new, especially touching a new data source that we never touched before, right? Because majority of the problem is that you're not really, you do not know how to build a model, right? But the data availability and the data quality is the issue, right? And you, you never know until you actually pull the data and play around with it. Oh, yes, yeah, so many issues with this data. This table does not join with that table. This data is missing in a four, four, six months period, right? So we always enter for this type of project, we, we give them uh, a POC, like time box, two weeks, three weeks, or two months, depending on the complexity, yeah? And then during the POC, we do iteration, right? We, we try something small, pull the data first, do exploration, and we report back to the business, to the stakeholder. Hey, based on our initial iteration, this looks like not that hard. Or mm, we do not know yet. We need to pull, uh, put more effort to do a bit more exploration to know more. Yeah? So once we already confirm, okay, this is data availability, is okay, then we start jumping in into building a very small model product. Just use a simple simple model, right? No, no, no need neural network complicated algorithm, right? Just to see, just with a simple uh, algorithm, what accuracy are you getting roughly? Yeah. So with that, we can extrapolate. Okay, so if you go to neural network or time series, I don't know, uh, NLP transformer, whatever it is, how much improvement we can actually make extra on top. From there, we can give them estimate, hey, this will take roughly about this long, yeah, and accuracy uh, pack within this figure. Is this acceptable? If they say, okay, yeah, Time-wise is okay, accuracy okay, then we go ahead into really building it. Yeah. So this is actually better win-win because the stakeholder no need to invest six months. Yeah. And at the end of the six months, we, bring, uh, we tell them, okay, it's not possible, right? So wasting their time and money. At the same time, we actually iterative slowly uh, uh, reporting back to them. 
to give them an informed uh, informative uh, data to to make an informative decision. Are we going ahead? If yes, then this is how long it takes, and this is what you're gonna get at the end. Yeah. So yeah, so that's really what what I'll take, and that's a lot of lot of my headache, really. Yeah. So it's better communication with the stakeholder from there on. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know that we're we're coming up on on time for this for this panel, um, and we have lots of lots of questions uh, from the audience and lots of comments uh, that uh, that we didn't get a chance to address in this uh, in this panel. Some of the answers are coming throughout the day, but also uh, we will continue the conversation on the um, Data Futurology Slack community. I'll post I'll post a link now for everyone who doesn't have it. Um, please join the, the Slack community. We'll put the questions that came in through uh, this session and all the sessions today. We'll put them on the Slack community, and then we can all continue the conversation and, and continue to uh, engage on these on these topics um, now and, and ongoing. So um, thank you very much to our panelists. Thank you, Kendra, Ram, Gus, Farhan. This has been amazing, fantastic kickoff to the day, providing so much depth and a better understanding of the landscape. Thanks again to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.